And welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Kirby's Dreamland, a platforming title developed by HAL Laboratory and published by Nintendo for the Game Boy Portable Console back in 1992. We're going to talk about that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 71. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com, and we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. We have weekly gaming challenges. We have great discussions. I highly encourage you all to check it out. I should also mention that we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if you want even more classic gaming today goodness, including a bi-weekly Patreon exclusive podcast expansion pack, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. I also want to give a shout out to our Pantheon patrons. They are ISO, Rich Senewal, David Morton, and Sam Twardowski. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Thank you all for supporting the show, whether you contribute monetarily or simply listen on a regular basis. I truly do appreciate all of the support. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context. How was the game made? Why was the game made? And then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or star counts or anything like that. But we do talk about every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it may have been released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? We do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should go out of your way to play those games today. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend you play them, especially if you enjoy the genre. By all means, give it a go. You should have a good time. They're not quite Pantheon level, but they're still really worthwhile experiences, and I still highly encourage you all to check them out. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broader population. They might have aged a little bit, might have had a couple of issues to begin with. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. By all means, go for it. But I cannot recommend these games to the broader community. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Kirby's Dreamland. Dreamland is a platforming title developed by HAL Laboratory and published by Nintendo for the Game Boy Portable Console back in 1992. Before we can talk about Kirby's Dreamland, 
we have to go back in time and take a look at the creation and evolution of HAL Laboratory itself, along with a couple of the key members that would ultimately become incredibly influential figures in the gaming industry. To start, though, let's talk about HAL Laboratory, a Japanese video game development company founded in 1980 by a man named Mitsuhiro Ikeda with the intent of creating peripherals and new technologies for the Japanese home computer market, namely the MSX computer ecosystem, as well as other popular computer platforms around the world like the Commodore VIC-20. In the month or so following the company's founding, the focus was squarely on determining what kinds of peripherals to work on and how those peripherals would advance the state of the computer industry. In fact, the company itself was created as a means of competing, at least indirectly, with industry heavyweight IBM, who over its 70-year existence at that point had been the inventors of so many technological advancements that improved not just the computer industry, but society at large, that it was pretty much a worldwide household name. HAL Laboratory was intended to be better than IBM, and interestingly, the reason the company is named HAL Laboratory, H-A-L, was because the company's founders wanted to prove that they were ahead of IBM. And what better way to prove that than to take the letters IBM and move the alphabet one letter up, resulting in the letters H-A-L. An obviously subtle move, but one that I found ingenious in its simplicity. Anyway, when HAL Laboratory was originally founded, its staff was primarily composed of hardware engineers, the kind of people that were able to create peripherals out of circuits and switches, but not necessarily well-versed in creating experiences for those peripherals that would best demonstrate why someone needed to buy that device. In other words, they had a group of hardware people, but they didn't have anyone who could actually make software. They needed a programmer. Which is why, within the first few months of the company being founded, they decided to bring on some part-time help, hiring college student Satoru Iwata as the first member of the team with any degree of programming experience. Before we continue, we've got to talk about Iwata, who would eventually become one of the most influential and recognized figures in the entire history of gaming. Iwata's programming exploits are legendary, and his role in expanding the video game market beyond the core gamer demographic is perhaps unparalleled, as in his later years, he would become the main driving force behind the creation of the Nintendo DS, Wii, and Switch consoles, all of which were focused on providing worthwhile and engaging gaming experiences for people of all ages, as opposed to simply focusing on the latest and greatest graphics and processing power to appeal to individuals who were already well-versed in the world of video games. In the process, Iwata would grow Nintendo as a company to record sales, a strategy which has persisted all the way to the present day. Back in 1980, though, Iwata was simply a college student with an advanced understanding of programming concepts and a desire to create games. As is often the case with these early origin stories, Iwata had an interest in technology from a very early age, and in particular, he wanted to learn how various machines actually worked. His first exposure to an actual computer system came when he was in middle school, when he came across a computer that was designed to manage a series of telephone lines. He didn't know exactly how it all worked, but he was intrigued by the technology, and shortly after, he began playing some simple games, becoming interested in learning how programmers could make computers and similar machines bend to their wills and execute whatever command a programmer might dream up. As you might guess, information about this kind of thing was not widely available back in the early 70s, so Iwata did the next best thing. He purchased an HP 65, which was the first consumer market programmable calculator back in 1974, and he began to learn how to create programs for the incredibly limited hardware that he now had at his disposal. Eventually, Iwata would begin creating simple games, distributing them to other students at his high school to mess around with. While he certainly showed technical aptitude in creating these number-driven gaming experiences, he was limited by the hardware he had available. All of that would change in 1978, when he purchased his first real computer, a Commodore PET, which was an all-in-one kind of machine that was primarily used for programming and other business-related kinds of tasks. While Iwata was interested in continuing to expand his programming knowledge, one of the first things he did once he received the computer, like many other tech-savvy individuals from around this time, was to take it apart to see if he could understand how it all worked. Once he reassembled the machine, presumably successfully, he continued to teach himself how to program a variety of applications and programs, eventually going to college at the Tokyo Institute of Technology in 1978 for, you might have guessed, computer science. 
While there, he continuously impressed his professors, who often noted that he was one of the fastest and best programmers in his classes, a level of expertise that led to Iwata being selected for an unpaid internship at Commodore Japan, where he ended up working on various software development and related technical tasks. This was a perfect opportunity for Iwata for a couple of different reasons. For one, Iwata wanted to learn more about computer hardware to go along with his rapidly expanding knowledge of computer software. And secondly, Iwata thought that he would be able to learn more about the undisclosed features of various computers and software, the kinds of stuff that wasn't broadcast to the public, but was instead reserved for experts in the field and other quote-unquote insiders. Iwata thought that by learning these hidden features, he'd be able to use that knowledge to develop even more advanced software. It wouldn't take long before Iwata put that knowledge to good use, and he and his friends ended up creating a computer game club where he and other members would code and create games as a hobby. Well, I say hobby because it wasn't like any of them were professionals, but Iwata took it very seriously, so much so that his apartment eventually started to be called Game Center Iwata by other members of the club, and he would routinely take the games he was creating and showcase them to anyone who would take a moment to look at his work, often stopping by nearby department stores to show off whatever his latest project was. One day in 1980, while Iwata was demonstrating one of his new games, a group of employees from a recently formed technology company caught a glance of his work and decided that he would be an awesome fit for their new company. They approached him and, after a relatively short discussion, offered him a job on the spot. And with that, Iwata would become the first software programmer to join HAL Laboratory. Once at HAL, Iwata was exposed to various hardware that the team had begun to create, and one piece of tech caught his eye. HAL engineers had created an add-on device that enabled older text-based computers to display graphical imagery, an enhancement that Iwata believed could potentially be used to create graphics for computer games. So, Iwata sat down to begin attempting to use the new hardware, and here he did something that many early game developers did. Rather than create brand new experiences, he decided to convert, or more specifically, copy, popular arcade games that companies like Namco had released. Nowadays, if a company or person tried to blatantly copy another company's work, they'd be smacked with a copyright infringement case and taken to court. Back in the early 80s, though, such efforts were often looked upon as ingenuity at work, and in fact, Iwata and Hal's work on these unofficial arcade conversions were so well done that Namco, rather than sue the company, decided to enter into a joint partnership, whereby Hal Laboratory would be the first company granted a license to create games for Namco. The next big step for Iwata, and by extension HAL Laboratory, happened in 1983, which is when Iwata became the head of software production for the company. This new role would be an expansion of Iwata's prior responsibilities. He would still be able to program games, but he would also be responsible for developing partnerships with other companies to help expand HAL's footprint in the industry. And here, Iwata had one singular goal. He wanted to work with Nintendo. Around this time, Nintendo had just released its Famicom system in Japan, an 8-bit home console that was rapidly taking the gaming world by storm. Iwata thought that a partnership with Nintendo would allow for tremendous opportunity, both for Iwata, who wanted to create games for the system, as well as HAL Laboratory, as a partnership with the expanding video game giant could only mean good things for the company. So, Iwata traveled to Kyoto and visited Nintendo's headquarters, at which point he asked leadership at the company for permission to begin developing for their new console. Nintendo did end up granting that permission, and with that, HAL Laboratory was now an official Nintendo third-party developer. I don't intend to go through the entire history of HAL Laboratory and Nintendo's partnership, which expanded throughout the 80s as HAL continually delivered new products for both the Famicom and, later on, the Nintendo Entertainment System. What I do want to touch upon, though, is one interesting story about Iwata as a programmer, which both demonstrates his genius-level programming skills, as well as illustrates why in later years, Iwata would effectively become a fixer for Nintendo, a person who could be called upon to take on the programming assignments that other developers considered next to impossible. Back in 1987, Nintendo was in the midst of creating a brand new golf game for their 8-bit NES console, entitled NES Open Tournament Golf, which they intended to be a full-featured multi-course game that would serve as the evolution of their prior golf game, simply entitled Golf, that had released several years prior. Nintendo had the concept, but it didn't want to create the title in-house, so it shopped the idea around to a number of different development studios, all of whom came back with one common response. There was no way a game of the size Nintendo wanted to create, with the level of detail they intended, 
would fit on an NES cartridge. Iwata heard about this seemingly impossible task and decided to come forward and offer to create the game for Nintendo, without any regard to how he would actually be able to complete the assignment. He knew he had the skills, and he thought it was a great opportunity to be noticed by Nintendo. He just didn't know what would need to be done to make the game a reality. Nintendo, happy that someone finally agreed to work on their game, gave Iwata permission to develop the title, and he subsequently began to develop the game, which ultimately required creating brand new custom compression algorithms just to get the game to fit on an NES cartridge. In Iwata's own words, this task was particularly taxing, but he did eventually complete the task, proving to himself, HAL Laboratory, and Nintendo that his programming prowess was light years beyond most others in the industry. HAL, Iwata, and Nintendo would continue to collaborate on a number of other titles, but at this point in the story, we need to take a brief detour to introduce a new player, that being game designer Masahiro Sakurai. Sakurai, from a very young age, was enthralled with video games, and in particular, he had dreams of designing his own titles. Sure, he loved playing games created by others, as we all do, but he wanted to take it a step further. He had a ton of ideas that he felt could be used to create engaging, worthwhile experiences, he just didn't have a team or a company that he could work with to make those ideas become reality. That would all change in 1989, when Sakurai, at the age of 19, would join HAL Laboratory as the company's newest game designer. Around this time, HAL had already become an established player in the video game industry, primarily through their partnership with Nintendo, and when they began expanding their staff in the late 80s, they were looking for people with fresh ideas who could help propel the company into the future. Sakurai, within months of joining the company, would come forward with a brand new game proposal. He wanted to create a game that featured a cute protagonist who used his enemies against each other, with the ability to throw enemies into other creatures in the game world. In a title that would appeal to gamers of all ages, and to leverage that appeal, he wanted to create a title that was decidedly easier than the majority of games that were being developed around this time. We have talked about difficulty in classic titles during a variety of prior episodes, but just to refresh everyone's memory. Video games designed around this time were almost universally dramatically more difficult than the majority of modern games released today, and that difficulty was a conscious design choice. The thing is, back in the 80s and early 90s, games had very real technical limitations that kept them from being large, sprawling experiences, so oftentimes developers had to compensate for lack of content by making games incredibly challenging. The thought was, the only way players would get their money's worth would be to play a game for an extended period of time, and because most games were shorter experiences, the only way to provide that extended playtime was to make the game require a ton of practice and repetition before players would be sufficiently skilled to actually beat the game. Sakurai had a different thought in mind. Rather than arbitrarily ramp up difficulty, he envisioned a title that was designed to be simple to play, and he wasn't dissuaded by the potential of releasing a game that could ultimately be beaten in an hour or two. One of the reasons for that was simply Sakurai's own internal beliefs, but the other reason was, Sakurai's game proposal was intended to be developed for the relatively new Nintendo Game Boy portable console, which was already viewed as being more focused on bite-sized games in comparison to its 8-bit console brethren. Because of that, Sakurai believed that an easier, more mainstream experience could potentially capture an entirely new audience that might have previously been put off by games that were a bit too difficult. So, Sakurai put all of those ideas into his proposal, and HAL Laboratory would end up greenlighting the development of Harakaze Popopo, which translates to English as Popopo of the Spring Breeze, with Popopo being the cute character Sakurai had envisioned as the main protagonist of the game. Unfortunately, though, HAL was in the midst of a number of other development projects, some of which had been underway for years, which caused Sakurai's Popopo idea to be shelved while the company focused on other games. One of those prolonged development titles was a Famicom game called Metal Slater Glory, an incredibly advanced Japanese-only visual novel that was being helmed by manga artist Yoshimiru Hoshi, with programming being the responsibility of, you might have guessed, Satoru Iwata. The origins of Metal Slater Glory are actually pretty interesting, as HAL Laboratory wasn't really planning on making a visual novel around the late 80s. One day, however, Iwata noticed some really impressive character artwork designed by Hoshi, who at this point was freelancing with HAL Laboratory and other titles, and he was so impressed that he thought it would be a great idea to enter into a partnership with Hoshi to develop a game using his unique graphical stylings. Hoshi agreed, and the two, along with several other members of HAL Laboratory, began developing the new title. 
Shortly after agreeing to create the game, Hoshi began developing the art and storyline for the title, but in doing so, he encountered an issue. Hoshi, like I mentioned, was a manga artist, and he was used to creating artwork that was only limited by the extent of his own artistic skill and his imagination. Creating artwork for the 8-bit Famicom system, however, was a bit different, with the biggest hurdle being the fact that Famicom's graphics system was designed to display graphics as a collection of repeatable tiles, which is great for designing game worlds and traditional pixel-based characters, but is not so great when creating manga-styled artwork that typically would have next to no repeatable elements in the artwork. So you might think, okay, compromises will have to be made in order to create this new game. Only there, you would actually be wrong. Hoshi had a strong artistic vision for the game he wanted to create, and he wasn't content to compromise on that vision. So somehow, he and the team needed to make the Famicom display graphics that it was simply not designed to do. And over the course of four years, Hoshi and various assistants, along with Iwata and other programmers, undertook the effort of making a Famicom title that looked incredibly advanced in comparison to other 8-bit games. And if you ever decide to look this one up, I think you will agree that they succeeded. That success did not come without a cost, though, as the size and quality of the artwork would make Metal Slater Glory the biggest Famicom game ever created, taking up a whole one megabytes of storage space on the game cartridge, which also required the use of specialized cartridge chips in order to make the game runnable on the Famicom system. These technical requirements caused the cost of the game's production to soar, not to mention the four-plus year development time, which was unheard of for an 8-bit Nintendo title. When Metal Slater Glory was eventually released in the summer of 1991, HAL Laboratory had shouldered a significant financial burden throughout the development process, and because of how costly the cartridge was to produce, Nintendo only authorized enough cartridges and specialized chips to support a single production run. While the entire quantity of cartridges did sell out, the total sales weren't even enough to cover the game's advertising budget, not to mention its prolonged development cost. To say this put HAL Laboratory in a tricky financial position would be an understatement. That being said, HAL thought that it could recover by focusing on other titles, and in 1991, after a year on the shelf, Masahiro Sakurai's Popopo of the Spring Breeze was added to the queue to begin being worked on in earnest. So, Sakurai sat down to begin designing the title, while Iwata was assigned to the team to begin programming the game to bring it to life. Early on, Sakurai knew that he wanted to create a cute, appealing protagonist, but he honestly didn't know what he wanted the character to look like. So, as happens with many early development efforts, he decided to create a placeholder for the character, choosing to represent Propopo as a simple circle, at least for the time being. While that circle wasn't the most expressive character ever created, it did give Sakurai and the team something to work with as they began creating the game, which would leverage several development tools originally created by HAL Laboratory during the creation of Metal Slater Glory to design the game's world and characters. Interestingly, the limitations of the Game Boy would introduce a number of unplanned challenges, with perhaps one of the more unexpected issues being the fact that the Game Boy wasn't quite powerful enough to model collision detection with the game's grounded environments. Instead, Sakurai had to design each character and its animations by hand, and embedded those animations and characters into the game world by overlaying them against static backgrounds, effectively creating the illusion of collision detection without actually having to calculate the positional coordinates needed to perform true in-engine collisions. It was a painstaking process, but it was an absolute necessity given the lack of power of the Game Boy's hardware. Storage space was also at a premium, and Sakurai and the team had to fit the entire game, including all sprites, graphics, music, and mechanics, into a cartridge that only had 512 kilobits, or half a megabit, of storage. Now note, these are bits, not bytes. To put it into perspective, a megabyte, which is less than the amount of storage on a single floppy disk in the early 90s, is made up of 8 megabits. Sakurai's game was being designed to fit within the equivalent of 1 16th of a megabyte, which is insanely tiny. That limited storage meant that a number of the game's graphics and sprites had to be repurposed, or in some cases mirrored, in order to create the variety of enemies and environments that Sakurai wanted to include in the title. Here again, the Game Boy provided an additional challenge, as in many games, different enemies might be created simply by doing a color palette swap. 
As an example, look at the original Legend of Zelda, where weaker enemies were often a red-orange color while harder enemies were blue. Well, Game Boys don't have the ability to display color, so palette swaps were out. Sprite mirroring, taking different halves of enemies to combine in different ways, and other ingenious design concepts needed to be used instead, which, as you might imagine, was another painstaking process that required significant effort to get just right. Turning our attention to the game's mechanics, recall that Sakurai's original idea for the game involved the main character, Popopo, using his enemies' own bodies against themselves. And similarly, there was a desire to allow Popopo to be able to fly through levels. The question was how to make these two concepts work in concert with one another to create a gameplay mechanic that felt natural. And here, Iwata had an idea. What if Popopo was able to fly because he puffed up like a cloud? And what if in order to puff up like a cloud, he inhaled a bunch of air? The team loved that idea, and they took that air inhalation as a mechanic that could be used for attacking enemies as well. What if Popopo could inhale enemies and other objects and spit them out at other enemies? That concept, similar to the floating cloud idea, was loved by everyone, so the mechanic became a core staple of the experience. And by the way, as the team began developing these mechanics and other features, a strange thing happened. That little circle placeholder for Popopo started to grow on everyone, and they began to consider that perhaps that circle could be expanded, just a little bit, to represent the main character of the game. Ultimately, that's exactly what happened, and Popopo would from that point forward be, officially, a ball-like creature with a penchant for inhaling anything in its path. With the game's graphics, main character, and mechanics coming together, attention turned to the game's music, which would end up being composed by Jun Ishikawa, a relatively new hire into HAL Laboratory. Ishikawa would be responsible for bringing the game's audio to life, and here he was, similar to Sakurai, constrained by the Game Boy's hardware. Initially, Ishikawa created several complex melodies with multiple chords and styles, similar to what he might have done when composing for the NES or Super Nintendo systems, but when he heard that music played back on the Game Boy's small speakers, he realized that complex music just did not sound great on the Game Boy's limited hardware. So he decided to simplify the themes, creating more basic melodies that oftentimes were simple and catchy enough that children would be able and want to hum the songs while they're going about other tasks. I'll talk about my own opinion of the game's music in a little bit, but I will say that the game made great use of the hardware available on the Game Boy system. We'll leave it at that for now. Eventually, all of the various elements of the game would come together, and Sakurai's first title, which had been renamed to Twinkle Popopo, would be ready for release. Similar to many of HAL Laboratory's other titles, the intention was to self-publish the game, so they began taking orders and were hit with a surprising truth. There just wasn't much interest in their new title. In fact, only 26,000 advanced orders were received for the game, which was an extreme disappointment. Beyond being disappointing, though, was the fact that HAL Laboratory was not in a financial position to release a game with such poor sales projections. They were still reeling by the cost of Metal Slater Glory, and another release without significant profit might have proved disastrous for the company. With the company's future in jeopardy, HAL Laboratory sought advice from their closest partner, Nintendo, and in particular asked for a discussion with Nintendo's most creative and well-respected designer, Shigeru Miyamoto. Miyamoto sat down with the HAL Laboratory team and immediately thought the game and Popopo as a character had a lot of potential. He also, however, thought that the game could use some changes in order to truly be a success. So he made a proposal. Nintendo would publish the game and assume the risk associated with the game not selling, as long as HAL Laboratory agreed to rework certain aspects of the game's design, while canceling all of the 26,000 pre-orders that the company had already received. To say this was a somewhat risky proposition would be an understatement. But the team at HAL Laboratory realized that Nintendo, and in particular Miyamoto, knew what it took to create a solid game, so they agreed to the proposal. Every single one of the 26,000 pre-orders were canceled, and Sakurai and the team began working on a revised version of the game. The main facets of the design that Miyamoto believed needed to be addressed focused on the size of the game, as well as the title of the main character. He believed that the game had a lot of merit, and he appreciated the title's focus on a less difficult experience. 
That said, he thought there needed to be some additional content added to the title, so he suggested that Sakurai and the team introduce an extra game mode, one that would be designed to present a more difficult experience for those players who may have more experience with playing games, and who might be looking for a more traditional, challenging experience that the base game just couldn't deliver. With that extra game mode, Miyamoto instructed the team to use a cartridge with four times the amount of storage of the original title, giving Sakurai and the team the space it needed to add the extra content Miyamoto requested for the game. The final piece of Miyamoto's proposal that needed to be addressed was the main character's name, as Miyamoto didn't believe the name Propopo would resonate with American gamers. So Nintendo of Japan reached out to their American counterparts to suggest a new name for the character. Nintendo of America deliberated for a little bit, brainstorming a number of names, until finally they sent over a proposal for the character, which Nintendo of Japan and HAL Laboratory both loved. From that point forward, Popopo would be known as Kirby. Interestingly, the actual name Kirby is based on the last name of one of Nintendo's lawyers from the mid-80s, John Kirby, who had somewhat famously defended Nintendo against a lawsuit from Universal Studios back in 1984. Universal Studios had claimed copyright infringement against Nintendo because they believed that Donkey Kong, Nintendo's arcade mascot that averted Nintendo's own financial issues in the early 80s, was too similar to King Kong, a Universal Studios film property. I'm not going to dive into all the specifics of that case here, but suffice it to say, John Kirby wiped the floor with Universal Studios, becoming an internal Nintendo celebrity in the process, so it feels appropriate that he was honored as being the inspiration behind the renaming of Popopo to Kirby. Anyway, eventually, all of the changes Miyamoto requested were put in place, the game was finalized, and Kirby's Dreamland would release for sale in April of 1992. The big question on everyone's mind was, would this new retooling of the game ultimately be successful? The short answer to that is yes. Yes, it would. Kirby's Dreamland would go on to sell 5 million copies and in the process would garner significant amounts of critical and player praise while proving, once again, that Shigeru Miyamoto had the Midas touch when it came to video game creation. To put Kirby's sales into perspective, the revised version of that title sold nearly 200 times the number of copies as Twinkle Popopo's original pre-sales. That is an absolutely crazy statistic to me. With such success, it wouldn't take long before more entries in the Kirby series would be created, and over time, Kirby became one of Nintendo's most beloved franchises, going on to star in nearly 40 games over the last 30 years, not to mention games where Kirby played a supporting role. A number of the individuals who worked on Kirby would also go on to become incredibly successful in the video game industry. HAL Laboratory itself, as a company, still exists today, and is still creating brand new Kirby adventures. Masahiro Sakurai, as a game designer, would continue to work on Kirby games for a period of time before branching off to try other ventures, with perhaps his most significant and respected venture being the fact that he would become the creator and director of the Super Smash Bros. series of titles, an incredibly popular Nintendo fighting game that would evolve to effectively become a love letter to gaming. Most recently, Sakurai would be responsible for Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, a project that introduced so much stress to his life that he contemplated retiring from the game industry entirely, and would in fact enter a semi-retired state as of late 2022. I don't know if that truly means he's retired or if he'll come back out to create the inevitable sequel to Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, but regardless of what he decides, Sakurai's influence on gaming will continue to be felt well into the future. Satoru Iwata would leave an even greater imprint on gaming, as he would eventually become not just the president of HAL Laboratory, but would also succeed Hiroshi Yamauchi as Nintendo's president and CEO in 2002, becoming the first individual outside of the Yamauchi family to lead Nintendo of Japan since its founding in 1889. Under Iwata's leadership, Nintendo experienced a period of extended growth and unparalleled innovation during which time he oversaw the development of the Nintendo DS portable system and Wii Home Console, Nintendo's introduction into the mobile gaming market, and, at least in the early stages of its development, the creation of the Nintendo Switch. Iwata brought a natural curiosity and optimism to his position, where literally anything was considered possible, as long as the end result was fun for as many people as possible. He became incredibly close with other Nintendo heavyweights like Shigeru Miyamoto, and over the years would become the face of Nintendo, brought on at least in part by the fact that he was the creator of the popular Nintendo Direct series of videos, a marketing and communication strategy that continues to deliver news and upcoming game releases to Nintendo fans even today.
Unfortunately for the entire gaming industry and fans around the world, Satoru Iwata would pass away in 2015 at the age of 55 as a result of complications caused by a bile duct tumor from the year before. Iwata's death was an undeniably tragic event, and one whose impact is still felt today. More impactful, though, is his legacy, which will truly never be forgotten. Kirby's Dreamland represented the start of a brand new franchise that saw incredibly talented individuals come together to create an experience that would evolve into a global phenomenon. The collective efforts of all involved truly created something special, and it is not hyperbole to suggest that the creation of Kirby as a character and the development of Kirby's Dreamland as a game are significant events in gaming history. While the Kirby of today is a vastly evolved form of his original incarnation, that in no way diminishes the original in any way, and the fact is, Kirby's Dreamland is still widely regarded as one of the better games of all time in the eyes of many gamers, and considering the continued slate of modern Kirby releases, I would venture a guess that the title and the character will continue to remain in the public collective consciousness for countless years to come. going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play Kirby's Dreamland today versus when it was released over 30 years ago. So Kirby's Dreamland is both a very traditional side-scrolling platforming title as well as an interesting distillation of what makes up a platformer, all self-contained in a portable format. As is typical in most side-scrolling platformers, your goal is to progress through a series of levels, avoiding obstacles and traps along the way while defeating or navigating around enemies. So, on its surface, pretty much a traditional platformer. What makes Kirby unique, however, is the way you control Kirby, as well as the way the game is designed in general, which provides for both a beginner-friendly experience as well as a more challenging set of levels that will likely take a bit of practice to get through successfully. In most platforming titles, you simply run around and jump on enemies' heads to defeat them, and most of the time, you're running through levels from left to right, or in some cases, up and down, in the pursuit of your goal. In Kirby, you certainly have those options available to you as well. But, Kirby has a couple of tricks up his puffy sleeves that serves to distinguish him from other platforming heroes. For one, Kirby can inhale enemies around him, effectively turning them into weapons that can be spit out at other enemies. Now, I should note that for anyone familiar with any Kirby adventures released after this original entry, there is a key component of gameplay missing, and that is the ability to take on an enemy's skill set and form when you ingest a bad guy. In Kirby's Dreamland, this particular piece of gameplay functionality was not yet implemented, which means that inhaling enemies doesn't really change your core skill set, other than allowing you to spit the enemy out as a projectile. Future Kirby games would expand upon the concept, allowing Kirby to acquire different skills depending on what enemy you suck up. Dreamland is a decidedly simpler affair, and you can definitely tell that this mechanic, while fun, was not yet fully figured out. Beyond ingesting enemies, Kirby can also simply suck up a bunch of air, which similarly can be spit out at other enemies and used as a projectile weapon. Inhaling air serves an alternative purpose, though, and that is the ability for Kirby to effectively float through a level without a care in the world, becoming a puffball that can completely avoid many encounters simply by floating above them. You might think that such a mechanic would trivialize many encounters, and for a good portion of the game, you would be right. Though I will say, the game's designers did a good job of making it so that Kirby's floating flight ability does not remove all difficulty from the game. There are definitely sections where you can bypass all intended encounters, but other sections actually require you to float in order to progress, and there are obstacles in various levels that could still pose some degree of challenge to progression. 
That being said, Kirby's Dream Land in its base form is a super short game, with only five levels to play through, one of which is almost exclusively a boss gauntlet kind of level where you have to defeat each boss you fought previously before fighting the big bad guy of the game, King Dedede. So you really only have four true levels of gameplay, which when you include the general ease of the title, makes for a very quick and to a degree unfulfilling experience, especially if you're a seasoned gamer. It's not that the game isn't designed well, because it is, and I would argue that the platforming for the title is actually some of the best platforming you're going to see on a Game Boy screen. Every level is inventive, has a huge variety of enemies, which is honestly kind of crazy considering the Game Boy's limitations, and has worthwhile and nicely detailed boss fights, some of which do require a bit of thought to get through. The only issue is, anyone with a degree of platforming know-how is going to complete the game in a single sitting, and may not even use a continue before seeing the end credits. It is seriously that easy. Which is to say, this is pretty much the perfect game for a young child's first platforming experience. I know many of us retro-inspired gamers have grand hopes of our children following in our footsteps, and oftentimes we introduce our kids to the games we played as children, assuming that they're going to see the same greatness we did, and automatically become enamored with classic games. The thing is, though, most classic games are really hard, and children today oftentimes don't have the patience or desire to die a bunch of times on the very first level of a game. They are used to more modern and often mobile experiences where there is no death and progression is constant. I'm not disparaging our current youths. I'm simply saying they have a very different set of expectations than what many of us did when we were kids, and Super Mario Bros. was a challenge waiting to be conquered rather than a frustration better avoided. Kirby's Dreamland avoids many of those difficulty pitfalls by providing an experience that nearly anyone can pick up and have some fun with. This is a much better introduction into classic gaming than many other titles, even though it has no colors and is, in its native form, only playable on a 2.5-inch monochrome screen. So you might be thinking that Kirby's Dreamland is more of a curiosity as opposed to a game that you really have to play. But here you would be incorrect, because not only is the base gameplay incredibly fun, but also, if you do beat the normal version of the game, which, like I said, anyone with a degree of familiarity with video games should probably be able to do without much issue. Then, you get presented with a special code that you can enter on the title screen that restarts the game with a much higher degree of challenge than the base game provides. Now, let me tell you, this special mode is surprisingly challenging, especially coming from the relative ease of playing Kirby in its default format. Enemies that you once encountered now have new moves, can move quicker, and do a huge amount of damage, and there are even new enemies interspersed throughout the game that add even greater difficulty to the experience. It is, effectively, a brand new game. This new challenge mode was difficult enough to provide a good amount of challenge, and I found myself continuing multiple times before I could actually beat the game. This felt like a proper Nintendo platforming experience, much more so than the game's base configuration. Bosses that I once beat easily now required new strategies, and brand new encounters made it so that I couldn't rely on my prior knowledge to defeat these revised levels. The level design itself, by the way, is exactly the same between the modes. It's just that the enemy configuration differs, and honestly, that makes all the difference between a super easy training wheels platform title and a suitably challenging game for individuals who have already cut their teeth on Nintendo-styled platformers. I know I've said it before, but it truly is like a different game. The fact that both of these experiences exist in a single Game Boy cartridge is incredibly surprising, as Game Boy cartridges didn't have much space to work with, so oftentimes just creating a single version of a game required compromises. That the development team was able to put two distinct experiences on the same cartridge is nothing short of amazing. And from my perspective, it was that second, more challenging experience that really sold Kirby to me as a game for everyone. For the newcomers, or those not seeking a challenge, play the normal version of the game. For people looking for a more traditional Nintendo platforming title, play the challenge version of the game. And for the true Kirby diehards, if you beat the game's challenge set of levels, you can unlock a configuration menu that allows you to set several different parameters to tailor the game to the experience that you want to play. This level of customization and degree of variability in game modes was not commonplace around this time, even on stronger non-portable consoles. 
The Game Boy handled this all without issue, owing largely to the development team's massive talent. I want to talk more about the specific aspects of the game, like the graphics and the sound, but first, as we always do, we need to take a look at the back of the box, because as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box for these games. I love seeing how different companies marketed their titles and tried to get people to buy them. Around this time, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have a ton of gameplay videos we could look up on sites like YouTube. A lot of times, our buying decision was based on potentially reviews we've seen in magazines or coverage in magazines, but most of the time, our buying decisions were made based on what the box looked like. Did it look cool? Did it tell us something interesting on the back of the box? Did it pique our curiosity in order to actually buy the game? So, for Kirby's Dreamland for the Nintendo Game Boy, the back of the box says Kirby's Dreamland. Kirby to the rescue. Dreamland is in peril. An evil king has stolen the magic twinkle stars. If they're not recovered, the people of Dreamland could starve. Meet Kirby, a roly-poly little hero, as he runs, jumps, floats, and swims in search of the treasured Twinkle Stars. He'll puff his way through castles, caves, dungeons, and forests. In his path are many wicked and greedy enemies, but Kirby has a special way to defeat them. It's non-stop action all the way to the top of Mount Dedede. And then there are a couple of screenshots on the back of the box, including some alternate language write-ups of presumably the same exact text that I just read. And I've got to say, this box sort of sells me on the game. I've got to admit that it is presented and the background behind Kirby is presented in almost a too cute kind of way for what I think I would have been interested in back then. Not to say that games like Super Mario Land or those kind of titles were marketed as real mature kind of entertainment, but reading the back of the box, okay, we're going to Dreamland. We got to save the Twinkle Stars. We're a roly-poly little hero. I've got to say, I don't know that the marketing pitch here would have totally appealed to the younger me. The older me can recognize that just because words are excessively cute doesn't mean that the game is just a kid's kind of thing. But the younger me might have been turned off a little bit by the box. I don't know. I didn't actually play, and this is actually a, a little bit of a tangent, but I never played any Kirby game earnestly until I sat down to play Kirby's Dreamland. I've known about Kirby forever. I've known about all the different games, and like we talked about, he starred in so many different games over the years. I had occasionally thrown a Kirby on in the past and just played around with it a little bit. But I never really sat down to beat a game, never really sat down to truly experience a Kirby game until I sat down to play Dreamland. And I got to say, now that I did sit down to play Dreamland, I absolutely want to experience all of Kirby's adventures, or at least more of Kirby's adventures, because there is something special about Dreamland. Before we move on from the box, though, I feel like I have to mention a little bit about the collectability aspect of some of these games. And it's not something that we talk about a ton, but collections, game collections, and trying to collect all of this content is sometimes a big deal. And for collectors, and I myself am one, we typically like to have complete experiences. The cartridge, the game, the manual, the box, everything. We want it all as part of our collection. And when I look up the back of the boxes for these games, because I do not have boxes for every single game that we cover, when I look up the back of the boxes, a lot of times where I find the images for those boxes is out on eBay, which is a common auction site, at least here in the United States. And a lot of times people trying to sell their products, so to speak, secondhand, are posting images of the condition of the items. And a lot of times that includes boxes. Well, a lot of times, depending on the collectability of the game, the prices for these total experiences might vary pretty wildly. When I looked up the Kirby's Dreamland box, just for the box alone, people are selling it for $150, United States dollars, that is, out on eBay, which is a pretty big number for sales that don't even include the game. Just the box itself today is being sold for 150 bucks. I don't know if that's actually going to lead to a sale or not, but it's interesting to me that as we look at all these different boxes, uh, some of them are worth, or at least people think they are worth a considerable amount of money. Anyway, I don't want to belabor that point, but I did find it interesting as I was looking at the back of the box for Kirby's Dreamland. 
But we are now going to move on to start talking about the more specific aspects of the game. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. Obviously, a Game Boy title is not going to have a ton of colors or have super detailed graphics. But the fact is, Kirby's graphics design still looks amazing. I thought that the game was very nicely detailed, with a variety of environments available to explore, a ton of different enemies to defeat, and nicely sized pixel graphics that compensated for the fact that the game was playing on a relatively small screen. If you recall our discussion on the original Super Mario Land, you'll note that for that game, I critiqued the fact that the game felt like a miniaturized version of a home console Mario title, which made the graphics appear small and gave the world a zoomed out kind of look. Luckily, that same issue did not impact Kirby's Dreamland, as this title felt designed to take advantage of and live appropriately within the 2.5-inch Game Boy screen, and as a result, it looked really good. Animations, similarly, were very well done, with smooth movement for both enemies and Kirby alike. The motion and animations were certainly not super detailed, but for a Game Boy game, I honestly have no complaints. Moving on to the sound and music, quite simply, the music in the game is excellent, and anyone who has played future Kirby titles can see how these initial audio tracks would pave the way for even more detailed and catchy music later in the series. Many of the tracks are easily hummable, and from my perspective, make great use of the Game Boy's audio capabilities. As with the game's graphics, this is never going to be mistaken for a more advanced title, but the music perfectly matches the action on the screen, and there is something pure about the way the synthesized music evokes a sense of joy as you play the game, at least in the normal version of the game. When you turn up the difficulty, you'll notice that the music remains a highlight of the experience, but now it provides a captivating backdrop for the more challenging gameplay, rather than presenting itself as a tune you'd whistle as you traipse around a series of easy platforming stages. In both instances, Kirby's music impresses, and this is one of those few early synthesis-driven titles that I would argue is listenable outside of the core game. I'm not sure I'd blast it out of my car speakers while I'm zooming down the highway, but my point is, this is a quality soundtrack. Sound effects, meanwhile, are simply fine. No real complaints, but also nothing particularly memorable. Overall, though, the audio environment in Kirby's Dreamland is pretty darn great. Moving on to the narrative and story, you play as Kirby, a young inhabitant of Dreamland who, along with the rest of the Dreamlanders, use magical sparkling stars to perform various day-to-day -day tasks, including harvesting food. One day, King Dedede, an evil despot who only cares for himself, led his minions on an assault on the Dreamlanders, stealing all of their food as well as the sparkling stars that serve as the mechanism for gathering additional food. The end result of that attack is that the Dreamlanders began to starve, and there was no end in sight. Luckily, Kirby stands up and volunteers to take the fight to King Dedede, and vows that he will recover the Dreamlanders' food and sparkling stars while putting a stop to Dedede's tyranny once and for all. As you likely surmised, and as we already talked about a little bit, this is an incredibly cutesy, almost childlike story setup. But honestly, playing the game it kind of works when you combine it with the general cuteness and simplicity of the title itself. It is certainly not a deep narrative, but as I've said many times before as it relates to platforming titles, you don't need a super detailed plot when your game is focused primarily on gameplay. I respect the fact that the development team included a narrative at all, even one that is likely more saccharine than even the sweetest Disney movie. Moving on to the playability and controls, we have talked a bit about the controls already, but just as a refresher, maneuvering Kirby around the game world boils down to walking, jumping, inhaling enemies and air, and spitting those projectiles out, as well as gently floating above the screen, avoiding many enemies in the process. And yes, the controls really are that simple, which is pretty much a necessity given the Game Boy was limited to a directional pad and two face buttons. The surprising thing is, though, those controls, while simple, still provided for pretty engaging gameplay, especially in the more challenge-oriented special mode of the game. One of the reasons for that engagement was the fact that pretty much anyone can simply pick the game up and play without any degree of learning curve. The other reason for that engagement is the fact that the game, as designed, is pretty much a masterclass in control design. And by that I mean the controls feel so, so good. There was never an instance where I made a mistake that wasn't my own fault. 
every time I fell, every enemy I inadvertently ran into, every time a projectile hit me, all of those situations were caused by my own failings rather than any issue with the game or its controls. Now, like I've mentioned a couple times before, the default game is pretty darn easy, so any mistakes you do end up making are forgiven pretty quickly. In the challenge mode, though, mistakes can be costly, so the fact that the game controls so well is almost a necessity in ensuring the experience remains fun despite whatever challenges the game throws at you. Beyond that, there's really not much to call attention to that we haven't already discussed. Kirby's Dreamland controls really well, and it remains as playable as any modern title, despite being over 30 years old. So overall, how did the game feel to play? Honestly, the game simply felt great, and it's almost like a walk through the park on a spring day with a light breeze ruffling your clothing and nary a cloud in sight. If you're more of a summer storm kind of person, then you should start up the challenge mode and enjoy an experience that is more akin to a thunderstorm with heavier downpours coupled with periods of respite. Okay, maybe the whole weather thing isn't the best of analogies, but the bottom line is, regardless of what mode you play or what your prior level of experience is, Kirby feels wonderful to play. It is truly one of the most accessible platforming titles I have ever played, while still providing a mode that more skilled players can test themselves on. It truly is the total package. So what is our final verdict on Kirby's Dreamland? Well, I've been fairly complimentary about the title so far, so you may have surmised that Kirby's Dreamland is most certainly the newest member of our pantheon of classic gaming. If you have even a passing interest in playing a well-designed platformer, or you want to learn more about where Kirby got his start, I highly recommend you give Kirby's Dreamland a go. While future titles would expand on the gameplay mechanics and scope of the game's world dramatically, as a first and portable outing, Kirby's Dreamland does a ton of things right and is therefore a surefire addition to our pantheon of classic gaming. was our episode on Kirby's Dreamland. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com, and we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. We play games. We do challenges. We have discussions. I highly encourage you all to check it out. I also highly encourage you all to check out our Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday. So if you want even more Classic Gaming Today goodness, including an exclusive bi-weekly podcast entitled Expansion Pack, patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday is where it's at. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on a pretty big game. It is The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. So feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that experience. I got to tell you, for me, Ocarina of Time, this is probably one of the biggest podcast episodes we have done to date. Because Ocarina of Time is pretty much near the top of so many gamers' lists of best games of all time. The thing is, it is a function of its time. It came out right around the time when 3D platforming and just 3D in general was really becoming popularized across the video and computer game industry. I don't know. Will Zelda Ocarina of Time, will it hold up under today's scrutiny? Well, there's only one way to find out. You will have to tune in next week. I am definitely looking forward to that one. 
So let me know if you have played the game recently. I would love to hear your thoughts. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services. And if you would feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave me a review. This is not about bolstering star counts. This is not about trying to harvest a ton of five-star ratings. Though if that happens, awesome, it means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is trying to get the feedback necessary to make sure that this is the best possible podcast it can be. We get new listeners every single day, which is awesome. The only way to continue to deliver the content that everybody wants to listen to is to get feedback from all of you and make sure that I continue to hit the mark. I am truly dedicated to making this the best possible podcast I can. I am truly appreciative for everybody who has been coming along for the ride and who will come along for the ride in the future. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on The Legend of Zelda, Ocarina of Time. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>